So I think most people pray. Think about this with me for a minute. I think most people pray. I think most people have an interest in prayer at some level. In fact, I think we can argue from Scripture that every single person has an instinct to pray, uh, even if they're not a believer, even if they're not a follower of Christ. And this, this might explain why world religions are so, so pervasive and so real. But we don't all do it the right way. And we often don't know what to pray and how to pray. Those of us who have trusted in Christ, we would say, as believers, are learning how to pray. And because we're followers of Christ, um, the Spirit of God dwells inside of us, and He is actually teaching us to pray. Um, and so prayer is just a fascinating thing that we could converse, that we could communicate with the God who made the world, that He would... That, he would, that he's spoken to us in his word and that we can respond to his word by praying. And so prayer is just an amazing thought. And, um, but it's not easy. It's, it's not an easy thing, right, to just... In fact, some of you probably have been struggling with your prayer life. I, I've been talking to people, some in my Sunday night class on prayer and some of you who are not, and I've just been asking you, tell me about, you know, tell me about your prayer life and... and and some of you have been really honest, which I love about this. Prayer is a struggle. Uh, and uh, one person said, you know, I, I want to pray. I know I should pray more, but I'm kind of stuck in this cycle of hypocrisy where I don't pray. I feel like a hypocrite if I do pray. And so they're just kind of stuck on this wheel of hypocrisy. And I, I don't know how to get out of that. Um, you know, others have said, man, my, my prayer life is just dry. Like, I live in a dry and weary land where there is no water. How do you, how do you get out of that? Uh, another person said, I would like to pray more, but when I stop to pray, I just get distracted. Like, I, I put my phone down long enough, I, I put the tablet away long enough to pray, and I just get distracted, and I don't, you know, I don't know how to get through that. Um, so confession, I'll make a confession to you, um, about prayer as well. During my sabbatical, uh, last year, it's hard to believe that's been a year ago or almost a year ago, I, I just came under pretty deep conviction that I have let the busyness of life and ministry and helping people and spending time with people and trying to prepare a sermon and just all the stuff that we do. I've let all the busyness of ministry crowd out what should be a more meaningful prayer life. And so I just started asking the Lord about 11 months ago, change my desire to pray. Deepen my desire to pray. Help me to see value. I mean, that's the issue, isn't it? Help me to see value in spending time praying. I don't see the value in it. I don't see the immediate effects of it. I, I don't see how it's working to make me a better follower of Christ and, and to help me live you know, more, more in obedience and and for the world and for things that I'm praying for to be changed. Like, does God really 
do things in response to prayer. So I have been the last probably 10 or 11 months just asking God um, on and off, and, and he has been deepening my interest in prayer, and it just so happens that we are in one of the most famous places in the whole Bible. If you want to learn about prayer, you came to the right place on the right Sunday because John chapter 17, I mean, who better to learn about prayer from than Jesus? Sound like a good answer? Like if you want to learn how to pray, if you want to learn what to pray, if you want to learn what prayer is, look at the prayers of Jesus. Look at the life and ministry of Jesus and look at the prayers of Jesus and especially look at the prayer he prays the night before he goes to the cross. Look at the prayer he prays on Thursday, late Thursday. I don't know exactly what time it is. I don't think this prayer is the same prayer as the prayer he offers in Gethsemane. Um, so in John's account, we think, this is, we think this is a separate prayer that Jesus offers, and he prays it so that the disciples will hear him. It's not just him praying to God. This is a little different. When you and I pray, we're praying to the audience of one. We should probably not try to instruct each other in our prayers. And Lord, I pray that you'll help Sister Susie. And Lord, I pray that you'll help Brother Mike. You know, we don't, we don't pray that way. We shouldn't pray that way. Jesus is allowed to pray instructively, and the disciples watch, and they listen, and he prays. He prays for three things. He prays for himself. We're going to do that next week. He prays for his first disciples. We're doing that today, and he prayed for all who would believe, the whole church, every disciple who'd ever come after the first disciples. We did that last week. Today, we want to think about his prayer for his first disciples. He prayed for, he asks the Father for his first disciples, for this, for this first batch of disciples that he's really entrusted the mission to. He prays four things. He prays that God will keep them faithful, grant them joy, make them holy, and send them out. He prays for allegiance, gladness, consecration, and mission, those four things. So I want to walk through those with you as we try to look to Christ, um, as we look to Jesus to teach us how to pray, to, to learn us some, some praying. Um, Jesus is the model. He is the example, and he's praying for us. We should, we should probably pray, no, we should pray these four things for one another. We should certainly pray these four things for the church. Let's think about them. Uh, together. Number one, let's think about allegiance. He prays that the Father will keep them faithful. Verse 11, check this out. In verse 11, he says, Holy Father, right? Quick side note, this is, it's important to pray to the Father as Holy Father. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Consecrated is your name. Your kingdom come. Jesus is teaching us how to pray. Holy Father, even in the way he addresses God, Holy Father, he first prays, Holy Father, keep them in your name. He, he first prays for them to be protected. While he was with them, he protected them. That would have been really cool to walk around with Jesus, the protector. You probably wouldn't feel a lot of anxiety walking around with Jesus. 
Like just knowing he's got this, whatever it is. So he protected them when he was with them. But now Jesus is about to leave. He's not going to be with them. Uh, and so he's praying to the Father. He says, uh, he says I'm, 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 not, I'm no longer going to be here. Holy Father, will you keep them? Will you keep them? Because not one of them was lost or harmed except Judas, and that was in fulfillment of Scripture. But now he's leaving, returning to the Father. They're going to remain in the world. They're going to stay in the world. He's leaving, so he entrusts them to the Father. He does not ask the Father to take them out of the world, but to guard them as they stay in the world and especially to protect them from the evil one. This is the first thing he prays. Keep them faithful, keep them, protect them. Not just, it's not just a prayer for safety. In fact, I, it's not so much a prayer for safety as it is a prayer for their loyalty and their allegiance. Keep them in your name. Look at verse 11 again, keep them in your name. What does that mean? It means Keep them in full conformity to your character. God, keep the, the name of God. The name of God is is sort of a shortcut to the character of God. So when you learn about the names of God in the Old Testament, you learn about the character of God, right? So what Jesus is praying here is, Father, I'm not just praying that you'll keep them safe. If I really wanted them safe, I'd just take them out of the world. He's not just praying for their protection. He's praying, he's praying for you to keep, Father, keep them loyal to us. Keep them faithful to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Keep them in full conformity to your character. Holy Father, keep them in your name, those whom you have given me, that they might be one, even as we are one, that they might reflect the beautiful unity and diversity that is in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. Keep them in that beautiful unity and diversity. God, keep them allied to, committed to, faithful to your character. Now, if the name of God reflects who God is and what he's like, and we're asking the question, who is God and what is he like? The whole point of the Gospel of John is to say that Jesus is the answer to that question. Jesus is the Like, if you want to know who God is and what he's like, the whole point of the Gospel of John is to say, I'm telling you who God is and what he's like. Jesus of Nazareth, he is the manifestation of God. He came to disclose who God is. Uh, the only one who was at the, side, at, at, at the Father's side, Jeff, John chapter 1, verse 18, right? The only one who was at the Father's side, he has declared him. Or just drop back into this passage in verse 6, I, he says in verse 6 of chapter 17, I have manifested your name. I have explained your name by, I'm the embodiment. Jesus, this is crazy and radical. Jesus was walking around claiming, I'm the embodiment of the name of God. Like if you want to know what God looks like, look at me. That's why, that's why the Jews went, went off on him and said, you're a blasphemer, because he was, he was really claiming to be God. So if Jesus is the full final revelation of God, but now he's returning to the Father, how can the disciples remain true to this? How can they remain faithful to Jesus when he's no longer around? That's exactly why he's praying for them. He's praying that God will hold them fast. 
He's prayed that God will hold them fast. When my faith fails, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, right? I could never keep my hold. This is such a great line. We just, we're just singing this. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. My love is often cold. My love waxes and wanes. My love is often cold, but he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Jesus is praying for that. He's, he's praying for their faithfulness and their allegiance. It's not really a prayer. I think I said this a second ago. It's not really a prayer of, of their safety. It's not a safety first prayer. We, we, we hear a lot about, we talk a lot about safety first, right? Safety first, safety first. And, and that's a good motto in so far as it goes. But that's not what's happening here. His prayer is more like safety second. He's saying no matter how the world threatens them, curses them, opposes them, persecutes them, no matter how dangerous it gets to be allied to Christ and to pledge your allegiance to the gospel, Jesus is saying keep them safe in that. Keep them faithful in that. Uh, Listen, if it were a safety first kind of prayer, there'd be no risk of remaining in the world, no risk of mocking and suffering and hanging on a cross. There'd be no grave. There'd be no mission. This is a dangerous place. This is a risky mission. And Jesus is saying, Father, I'm not so much praying that you'd keep them out of every every aspect of harm. What I'm praying for is that you would keep them faithful. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name. Secondly, he prays for gladness. This is, this is a fun part. This is a good part. This is, uh, this is the part where you should smile. Even if you haven't smiled today, you should just be glad. You should, like, if you've experienced God's grace, you should be glad in your heart. Um, the second thing Jesus prays is in verse 13. God, would you give them joy? No, if, you, if you like to make notes in your Bible, circle the words, my joy. Do you see those? My joy. Like Jesus is saying, Father, don't just give them happiness and gladness. Don't just give them, you know, give them my joy. Like give them the joy of Jesus Christ. Now think about this. Keep the prayer in his context. He's on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's on the way to the cross. They're going to continue to live in the world, a world that's not going to embrace who they are. And in that exact moment, he prays for his joy to be fulfilled in them. In that moment, in the moment when you would expect him to pray something else, he prays that that they would find a sense of joy and gladness and delight that so transcends their circumstances. Remember John 15, 11. Jesus writes something like this. He says, these things I have spoken to you. What things? In John 15, he's been talking about abiding in this relationship with me. I'm the vine and you're the branches and there's no way to have a life-giving relationship if you're not in me. So you need to be connected to me. All these things, he said, I have spoken to you so that you might discover fullness of joy, true happiness, profound gladness, so that you will be 
affected, uh, affected with an A, deeply affected in your heart and soul, and the gladness of Christ would become your gladness. I mean, Jesus was the happiest person who ever lived. He had the deepest sense of purpose and gladness all mingled into one existence. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 says, the oil of gladness was, he, he, he was anointed with the oil of gladness beyond all of his companions. Jesus was a happy man. <laughs> Think about that. The Son of God was a happy man. Nothing will sustain your gladness like Jesus. I want you to think about all the things that make you happy for a second. Think about the things that make you the happiest. And it's, if I could just see the bubbles popping up over, if you were texting right now and I could see the bubble popping up I, over what's, what makes you happy and what makes you happy. And hunting makes me happy. Fishing makes me, or, you know, antiquing. Is that how you say it? If you go antiquing, is, are you do, is, that you do, is that what you do? I don't antique. I don't know how to say it. How do I say it? Antiquing? Okay, thank you. I'm getting a little help down here. Um, you know, uh, so whether it's quilting or antiquing or shopping or going to Pigeon Forge or, or NASCAR or, uh, or the lake or vacation or just whatever you, or, or, fo- or football or sports, basketball, soccer, football. I mean, whatever it is that makes you happy. Jesus wants to reshape your gladness in such a way that that very thing that you like so much, and it's not necessarily wrong to like it, but he wants to reshape the thing that you love so that you will see it in its proper perspective and love him, listen, even more than that thing. That you would love him, that, you're, that your affections, because you're supposed to, you're, you're, an effect, uh, you're, you're a loving, desiring, delighting creature, and you can't get away from that. You were made to delight in things and love things, and you will delight in things and love things. And eventually, some, sometimes what happens is the love that you have for all these other things creeps up and just kind of pushes your love for God down and away. Jesus is not saying you can't have fun, you shouldn't enjoy life. He's saying, I want, I want you to have my gladness, which will re- redefine every other gladness that you have. I'll just give you a little example. Uh, so we have been... Yeah, we've been in kids' rec sports for a couple decades now. So I've seen a few games, and uh, I've never seen anything like I saw yet uh, on, on Saturday, yesterday. It was crazy. Ten and under football. Okay, this is ten and under children playing football, which I love me some football. Like full contact, people get hurt kind of football. I love that. I mean, I, I appreciate no targeting. I mean, targeting's not a good thing, so I'm, I'm, with, I'm with what we're doing there. But so I, I, I love football. But I'd never seen anything like I saw yesterday. In a 10 and under, non-championship, regular season game, I'm telling you, the other team's parents were off the hook. <laughs> like, it was going crazy. First, first down, going crazy. First touchdown, going nuts. I mean, they got, a, the whole side got a penalty in the first half. The whole side. I mean, I felt for the refs. Because, I mean, these are big football coach dads, like, ready to kill people. Like, it was crazy. I mean, the, the love and affection. So what, why, what, what, what does this to people? 
what does this to people is what you love drives you to a place of excitement. Th this one coach, I, I can't do it. I will scare some of our ladies and I'll be at the hospital this afternoon visiting people. I, I can't do it. It was crazy. So is football, is football fun? Yes, football is fun. Fun, sir. Football is fun, sir. Yes. We love football. But we should never love football more than God himself. And God's the one who keeps us in the order of things. Like, he helps us to realize, oh, those people on the other side are also people. And those kids on the other team are also people. You can move from gladness to shaming your opponent in a moment. You know the only thing worse than a poor loser? What is it? A poor winner. I saw that yesterday. And, and I was just asking the question, what's happening here? Here's what's happening. What you love will drive you. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be sports. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? I don't even care about sports. That's fine. But there's something you care about and that you love. And it will creep up. And Jesus is doing this. He's saying, "I'm gonna, Father, 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 keep them faithful to your name and your character. And also, will you fill them with a redefined sense of gladness? It'll change everything about who they are and how they live and what they love. And, and of all things, it will help them to love me, the giver of every good and perfect gift. Like God is the giver of every... Where do you think football came from? Where do you think the beauty of creation came from? Where do you think music came from? Where do you think all these amazing things that we enjoy came from? They didn't just come from Mother Earth. They didn't just come out of nowhere. God is the giver of all good things. And it must, man, it must hurt. It must hurt the Father and the Son and the Spirit when we are so blind and our loves are so disordered. You think about, think about a gift that you gave to somebody. Think about a gift you gave to somebody as a parent or a grandparent. You're a, you're, you gave a gift to somebody and it meant something to you. And then you saw that person abuse or neglect that gift. What, what's that like? Jesus says, I want them to have my joy. I want that kind of joy. I want the joy of God, the delight of God. It's what we talked about last time in Psalm 16, in verses 3 and 11. In Psalm 16, David's talking about delight. David's talking about what drives him and the gladness that drives him. And most of the time for David and for the psalmist, for the, for the rest of the biblical writers, the things they want us to delight in the most that kind of recalibrate every other delight are delight in God, first and foremost. You should love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind. You delight in God and then delight in other people. Delight in the saints in the land. Delight in other people. Did you do your homework assignment last week? I, I think I gave you a homework assignment last week. You remember that? Like, man, I don't remember that. You don't remember your homework assignment from last week. We were going to try to delight in somebody. Do you remember this? We're going to try to look at somebody 
and delight in them. If you haven't done it, it's not too late. No shame here, okay? I'm not shaming non-delighters. Um, that would be kind of counterproductive, wouldn't it? Yeah. If you haven't done it yet, this week, purpose in your heart that you're going to find the connection between delighting in God and delighting in someone that he's put in your life. Because Jesus and, and the apostles, they keep saying things like, you, you can't really love your brother if you don't love God. And you can't say that you love God if you don't care about this other person. You can't. So the next time you get depressed, feel self-pity, or anger starts to grow inside of you, or a critical spirit kind of comes alive in you, the next time you're starting to feel that, just, just pray. Pray like Jesus. Pray the prayer of Jesus. God, would you please grant me your joy? Grant me the joy of Christ. Grant me the joy of Christ. Help me to delight in you and to delight in others. Number three, here's what he prays. So at first he, first he prays that they would be kept in full conformity to the character of God, continuing, increasing conformity to who Christ is. Secondly, he prays for gladness. This would be one of the ways that we would reflect more and more who God is. He prays for gladness and joy. Third, he prays for, for holiness, that God would consecrate his people. Um, but, but this is tricky because he's not praying, listen, he's not praying for them to try harder to be good little boys and girls, to make themselves holy, to sanctify themselves. This is not a moralistic prayer. Jesus does not pray moralistic prayers. He does not pray, he doesn't pray, God, please help the church be good, do good. Be good, do good. Be good, do good. Make themselves holy. That's not what he's praying. The word that he's using here in verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Um, it's part of a word group in John's gospel that most of the time describes either Jesus or the Holy Spirit. So in chapter 6, if you go back, you'll see Peter says something like, to whom should we go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. You are the Holy One of God. You are the consecrated one of God. You are the sanctified one of God. You are the separated for God's purposes. So most of the time in, in this gospel, what we find is it's either a reference to Jesus or the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, consecrated spirit, um, the Holy Spirit. So this is a clue, and here's what the clue teaches us, that holy is basically a synonym for God. That, that's what, like, if you're trying to figure out what the word holy means, it means someone or something that's been set apart and reserved as completely other and separate and distinct. So in the Bible, it often is the case that holy is basically a synonym for who God is, which is why the angels cry out unceasingly in his presence in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So it follows then that anything that's set apart for God is called holy, whether it's a set, uh, like a censer or a temple or a candelabra 
or an offering in the Old Testament. They're set aside as holy because they're, they're, they're pronounced as for God. So, so if you keep thinking this way, it, as it turns out, the Old Testament's call to holiness was pointing us to God, not to our own ability to perfect ourselves. It was never... The, the, all, the call of, all the call to holiness that you read about in the Old Testament is never to perfect oneself. You can't, you cannot will yourself. You can't, like some of you are hard workers and you, you want to will yourself to, you can't will yourself to righteousness. You can't will yourself and just say, I'm going to do this. I will be holy. You can't do it. We've tried. We've tried. So what's Jesus saying? Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. We've got to get this phrase right. Your word is truth is not a generic reference to Bible truth that you pick up from this verse or that verse. Like a daily Bible verse calendar. I'm just going to get that verse and I'm going to try to live that way. That's not what, this, that's not what Jesus is talking about in verse 17. The truth here is the full and final revelation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Jesus is the embodiment of God's truth. Sanctify, here's what he's praying, sanctify them in the truth that I am the Son of God, in the reality that I disclose who you are, and that if they will get in me and, and become increasingly more and more like me as a result of that, they will, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free and they will be free indeed. The Father will sanctify them as by faith they continue to trust in Jesus. That's, that's why Jesus could say of these knuckleheaded disciples who almost get nothing right along the way, he gave them his word and they received it. What's he talking about? He's definitely not talking about he told them what to do and they did everything exactly right. He's talking about I have, I've shown, I have shown them who you are. And they believe that I'm the Messiah. They believe I'm the promised one. And they're resting their lives. They're banking their lives on this. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And when you follow him faithfully, when you follow him as the embodiment of truth, then you will be sanctified by the truth. Then you'll stop living with all these questions about whether or not you're living this do I have the right list? Am I living according to the right list here? Am I living according to the right list over here? Am I living according to the right list? This guy's got a different list. This pastor has a different list than this pastor. And that pastor's got a different list than this pastor. Now, whose list, am I, whose list of holiness am I following? Jesus is not talking about that. He's saying, get in me. Discover me. Follow me. Walk with me. Let me change you. Jesus lived the perfectly set apart life for God. This is why Jesus is the Holy One of God. He lived a perfectly set aside life for God. When you think about who Jesus is, what he came to do, at the center of that is he reserved his life for perfect obedience to God. Something you and I could never do. That's absolutely freeing. Here's how, I wanna, here's how you're going to get to hold, true holiness. 
the way you're going to get to true holiness is not by working harder, but by getting in Christ by faith, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne, and then walking with him faithfully in a discipleship community like the church and becoming increasingly more and more like him. Justified, yes, you're fully and your sin is fully and finally paid for. If you want to put it in in those terms, justification is done. And and yet you have this opportunity to live an increasingly more Christ-like life. That's what he's praying for here. Make them holy by consecrating. Father, I have... So here's what he's doing in a sentence. You're like, this would have been a lot cheaper and less time if you just give me the whole thing in a sentence. Um, In a sentence, he is simply saying, Father, I consecrate myself to thee, to you. I'm consecrating myself to thee. And now I'm praying for these disciples so that they might be consecrated to you as well. In and through Christ. Here's the final thing. Send them out. Father, send them out. Jesus prays for the Father's blessing as he sends the first disciples on mission. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world. You've got to think about that for a second. As you sent me into the world, so I'm going to send them. What if the Son, I mean, what if the Son had not been sent into the world? What if, what would that look like? What, what, what if the Son had not been sent? But as, so Jesus prays for the Father's blessing as he sends the first disciples. The same missional impulse that brought the Son of God into the world. This, this is what I want you to get. The same missional impulse that, that, that gave the Father a willingness to send him and, a, and the Son a willingness to go. That same missional impulse is what he prays will characterize the disciples. This is why we're convinced that as a church, we are at our best. We're at our best when we're not just thinking about us, but when we're thinking about people outside of us. This is why we think it's so important to go on mission. We should be ascending and multiplying church because that's exactly what Jesus prayed for his disciples. Jesus' prayer of consecration for his disciples was not so that they could form a holy huddle. It's much more comfortable in the holy huddle. It's much more comfortable in the holy huddle and the security, and we know each other, and we've been together for a while, and we trust each other. Now, you start throwing some new people in here, and it gets a little uncomfortable. But this is what Jesus is praying for. One of our Bible study classes recently planted a new Bible study class. That is hats off to them because that is hard to do. It is hard to, it's hard to send your best to go plant a new Bible study class. It's hard to send your best to go plant a new church, to plant a new community group. Uh, it's just hard. It's much easier to stay in that, in that us thing we got going. It's much more comfortable. Aren't you thankful? If you're a Christian today, listen to this. 
Aren't you thankful for verse 18? As you sent me into the world. Like your redemption, your, your pers- the, the redemption of your own soul, which is going to make a difference for all of eternity. As he sent his son into the world on your behalf, he says. So I am sending these disciples. He's banking, the whole mission is banking on these 12, except for Judas, right? Because scripture had to be fulfilled. That's really crazy when you think about it, that, he, that Jesus would entrust his mission to 12 men who would go and who would be sent. It's much easier to think about ourselves, to stay focused on our own selves and kind of huddle in to security, huddle in rather, um, in the love and unity and security of one another. But look, the gospel was never just for you. The gospel's not just for me. The gospel's for the person who has not yet heard it as well. So we need to feel the impulse of this. Jesus prays, Father, send them out on mission. So I have sent them into the world. And so, Lord, consecrate them for that purpose. Verse 19, this is the last thing I'm going to say, and then we'll close. Verse 19, this is really good. Uh, And for their sake, I consecrate myself. So this is the end of his prayer for his disciples, the first batch of disciples that he spent the last three and a half years with or so. This is the last thing he prays. For their sake, Father, I consecrate them. What do you think he's, yeah, what do you think he's got in mind here? What's he thinking about? For their sake, I consecrate myself. What do, you think he's, what do you think he has in mind? He's thinking about the cross. Anytime in the Bible when you read language like for their sake, on their behalf, it's the language of substitution. It's the language of greater love has this for no man than that he would lay down his own life for his friend. Over and over again, the apostles use the language of for their sake, for someone. You know, it's, it's, it's the language of the cross. It's the language of substitution. You should die, but you don't have to. You should experience the wrath of God, but you don't have to. You should experience eternal death, but you don't have to. For their sake, I consecrate myself. He's talking about the cross. Verse 19 is, is the, the, the longer I read this prayer, the more I see it. Once I've seen it, I can't unsee it. For their sake, I consecrate myself. What is the cross? It's an altar. It's an altar of consecration. Jesus goes and he hangs on a cross to consecrate his own body and soul as an offering to recapitulate, to redeem, to do everything for you that you and I could never do for ourselves. To be the, to be the last Adam to be the second Adam, but the best Adam, the perfect Adam. That's what he came to do. So he's saying, Father, like this is an amazing prayer. Like in John 17, you're in this moment. Jesus is praying to the Father, I am going to the cross. I'm going to consecrate my life. My body's going to be broken. My blood's going to be shed. And I'm going to consecrate my life 
for these disciples. Like they're sitting there listening to him pray. It's like, I'm dying for you, I'm dying for you, I'm dying for you, and you, and you, I'm dying for you, I'm praying for you, I'm dying for you, and I'm praying for you. That's awesome. For their sake I consecrate myself so that they might be consecrated in the truth. And again here, he's not talking about simple propositional truth. He's talking about the truth that he is the disclosure of God. The full and final disclosure of God. The God that you're looking for is Jesus Christ. The one who can help you and save you is Jesus Christ. So I want to pray for us this morning. And I want to invite those of you who have not yet yielded your life to Christ. I want to invite you to trust him. Maybe even take a risk and open the vulnerability uh, bank of your heart and say, Jesus, if you're real, you could pray a simple prayer like I prayed when I was 18 years old. Jesus, if you are the Son of God, if you're who you really say you are, would you change my life? Would you save me? Would you rescue me from myself and all the lies, protect me from the evil one, all the lies that have just filled my life? I want to turn away from those. I want to believe that you are the Son of God. Make yourself real to me. Pray something like that and ask the Lord to help you. Jesus, thank you this morning. Thank you for reminding us that you consecrated yourself for disciples. We want to be those disciples. We entrust our lives into you, into your hands, and we pray in Christ's name. Let's sing in response. John, will you lead us?